Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. everyone. Welcome back for episode two of our emergency general surgery series. This one is called cancer emergencies. I'm really excited. This is a huge passion of mine and we have two great cases. I'm joined by Jordan and Graham. Hi, Ashley. And hi, Graham. This is a great topic and I think a very important area to focus on. General surgical cancer emergencies present in many flavors, often as an initial presentation of cancer of the GI tract, biliary system, uh, potentially even the lymphatic system. And these emergencies are typically due to bleeding, obstruction, or perforation. And of course, we also see uh, typical general surgery presentations in patients who have cancers, which may be complicated by the existence of those cancer diagnoses. So an in-depth understanding of cancer therapies and prognosis is critical for the on-call general surgeon. Hi, everyone. I'm looking forward to this session and uh, so lucky to work with you both, uh, Dr. Nadler and Dr. Nada. Of course, Dr. Nadler, who's actually, in addition to being an acute care surgeon, is a fellowship-trained surgical oncologist. Um, we, we picked this session because these presentations can be really tough. There's so many different types of cancers that we're responsible for. We need to know how to initially work these patients up. Um, we need to know who needs an intervention now, who can wait, but maybe needs one on the submission, who should go to chemo or get radiation first, who needs to be presented at uh, multidisciplinary rounds. And, you know, I think for all the residents out there, we we really want to know who needs an urgent intervention. Who are we calling the staff in the middle of the night about? Um, and then, of course, if you do call your staff, they're going to ask you, what do you want to do? So if you're going to intervene, are you going to resect? If so, are you going to divert, do an anastomosis? Um, are you going to bypass, stent, or maybe do something else? So obviously a huge topic. We can't cover it all in 30 minutes, but I think we've got a couple of great cases that highlight some of the important principles. I agree. It's a huge topic, but definitely an important one. These presentations are really common. Uh, for example, in colon cancer alone, and then the, although there's lots of different estimates, 15 to 40% initially present in an emergency setting. 3 to 10% can be with a perforation, up to 40% with an obstruction. And it may be even higher now as COVID has reduced access to endoscopy, primary care, and access to specialists. Uh, the outcomes also tend to be worse when cancer patients present in these ways. And a big part of this is when we select any management plan, we have to be really cognizant of the effects on both quantity as well as quality of life. Advances in oncology management have extended survival, so more and more people are living with cancer and living with advanced cancer. So doing this well is an important aspect of end-of-life care for many patients. 22% of patients undergo a surgical procedure in the last year of their life, and 10 to 20% of all surgical procedures are done with palliative intent. So we wanted to highlight that as some of the important considerations here. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, these are really kind of impressive and unfortunate statistics, and uh, we want to know how to approach these cases. Uh, and thanks, Graham, for the intro as well. But now you're in the hot seat for a couple of cases. Uh, don't worry, we'll do some teaching as we go through. Uh, and like you mentioned, I have an interest in the intersection of the two specialties of acute care surgery and surgical oncology. So I do see lots of consults for emergency surgical oncology issues. The first case is a 68-year-old woman with metastatic colorectal cancer who presents to the emergency department with two days of nausea, vomiting, distension, and obstipation. What do you want to know, and how would you assess her? Thanks, Dr. Nadler. Um, sounds like a great case. These, these patients can be really tough. 
you know, it sounds to me like this, uh, you know, is a bowel obstruction, but I want to know more to determine the cause. Is it malignant? Is it something else like adhesions? Um, specifically, I want to know about her current symptoms and her cancer and surgical history. So, you know, what treatments has she had for her colorectal cancer? Um, is she, is, what's she currently on? Does she have metastatic disease? And if so, where? Um, and then I also want to know a bit about her functional status. Um, and then, of course, the relevant past medical history, medication, social history, that kind of thing. Okay, great. Uh, so she's healthy other than the cancer. Um, prior to this, uh, she had no comorbidities. She underwent neoadjuvant chemo radiation followed by a laparoscopic low anterior resection in 2019 for curative intent. She then completed consolidation adjuvant chemotherapy. In early 2021, she was found to have peritoneal carcinomatosis on surveillance imaging, and she was restarted on chemotherapy when that was identified. She's had no other sites of disease identified uh, since. Her last dose of full fury was two weeks ago. So Ashley, how do we know what to make of this type of chemotherapy? Uh, It's a great question. So it's important to know the side effects and potential complications of different systemic treatments, especially if we're considering surgery as they can affect healing and other outcomes for patients. We may be familiar with chemo regimens for certain GI malignancies as we deal with these in general surgery, but less so for other primary malignancies that can lead to carcinomatosis, such as gynecological cancers. And we may not know that much about third or fourth line treatments or clinical trials that patients are on. You can learn more about the related toxicities of different chemo regimens from uh, the discussion section in the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines or NCCN guidelines, but it's best to involve a patient's oncology team for multidisciplinary care of these patients to get this information. They may also be able to give you a sense of prognosis and whether or not further treatment is available should we be able to deal with this current presentation of obstruction. Um, ideally, we also present these patients at multidisciplinary cancer conference, but it depends on the time frame of their urgent presentation. Uh, the good thing about these obstructions is usually you have some time to work them up further um, because it's unlikely that they have ischemic segments. What's harder is to know who needs treatment and what we can offer, who can benefit from that treatment. Uh, Graham, what do you want to do next? Okay, so um, so we've got this patient with uh, some malignant small bowel obstruction. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go examine the patient. Uh, of course, check their vitals first. Um, specifically on my exam, I'm looking for things like distension, pain. You know, do they have any peritoneal findings? Can I palpate any masses, um, scars from previous surgeries, hernias? It's always embarrassing when the general surgery resident misses a hernia. Um, and then I start basic management with some IV fluids or basic labs, um, and I get a CT of their abdomen and pelvis if they're uh, if they're stable enough, I think that would help me to determine the cause of the obstruction. Okay, good. So her abdomen is distended and mildly tender. She has no palpable hernias. Uh, her white blood cell count is elevated at 13, but her labs are otherwise normal. A CT abdomen pelvis is done, which shows carcinomatosis involving the omentum and a few areas in the pelvis. There's a transition point in the ileum secondary to the carcinomatosis in the right pelvis. Uh, You can see the CT image on the podcast show notes uh, for your reference. Uh, How would you proceed? These are challenging cases. It's hard to develop a good approach to who should get surgery and who shouldn't. Graham, do you want to start with how you'd manage this patient medically, and then we can get into deciding on surgical management? Great. Thanks, Dr. Nada. Um, So I'd start by admitting the patient uh, at some of our institutions. They do get admitted under oncology, and we follow, um, but they need to get admitted. Um, I would talk to our colleagues in oncology and make sure that I understood the treatment plan from their perspective and uh, the patient's overall prognosis. 
Um, I'd consider a nasogastric tube at this point for decompression and start the patient on octreotide and dexamethasone to reduce secretions. Um, you know, ideally, the obstruction would resolve with the conservative management alone. Um, I also really try to have upfront conversations with the patients about their goals of care, their understanding of their prognosis and their expectations and the things that are important to them. And what I find is these conversations really help our team to align any potential surgical uh, options that we can offer with the realities of their disease and uh, the goals that are important to them. I want to make it clear up front that surgery in this setting is palliative um, and our focus is really on doing anything we can to improve their quality of life. That's perfect. I spend a lot of time having these discussions with patients. They need to know that surgery, if it's even possible, is to try to allow for oral intake, improvement of symptoms, or potentially to resume chemotherapy. Um, the literature is very heterogeneous outcomes, so it's important to know what the patient thinks is meaningful to them in terms of outcomes, and if you can aim to accomplish this or not with surgery. I let them know this is an end-of-life event and that the goal of surgery is to improve quality of life for palliation and not for quantity. In terms of medical management, you can also add an H2 blocker, such as ranitidine, which can be effective at reducing secretions and resolving the obstruction. Any thoughts on nutrition? TPN, of course, in these cases is very controversial um, when it comes to malignant bowel obstructions and palliative patients. Um, this seems to be quite dependent on the provider and the institution as well. Thanks, Jordan. I totally agree. I think the big decision is if you start TPN or not. Because once it's started, it's hard to stop from the patient and family's perspective. If I think the patient is a surgical candidate, then I will consider starting TPN prior to surgery with the goal that they will regain enteral nutrition post-op. This is hard to predict, as most studies have varied outcomes that they look at. And even with surgery, not all patients can eat enough to make up their caloric requirements. Aside from outcomes, it's important to get a sense of their prognosis and the role for further treatment. If a patient has a good functional status, has a prognosis greater than three months, and is a candidate for further chemotherapy or immunotherapy, then I think TPN can be considered. It's obviously very controversial, but that's my approach, and I recognize that different physicians will have different approaches, and there's divided interests on this topic. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think the controversy with this patient population reflects the difficulty in looking after them effectively. Uh, yes. And unfortunately, it's mainly retrospective data that exists with highly selected patients that actually undergo any intervention. So it's really hard to make definitive conclusions based on the literature. Also, I try to settle patients with medical management alone while deciding if they are a surgical candidate or not. Very different from adhesive obstructions in which we would try and make a decision early on if they're going to resolve or not. But for these patients, I'd allow even up to a week to try and resolve their obstruction with medical management, even if surgery is an option. Graham, any idea if this patient could be offered surgery or not? And what criteria do you look for? Uh, yeah, so I guess a key question. So you know, it, it sounds like she has a single transition point. So that's a pretty good sign. Um, she has had recent chemo, so I'd probably be off, uh, hesitant to offer an anastomosis. But, you know, I do think it'd be reasonable to do a diverting ileostomy if the transition point is distal in the small bowel. Great. And she also has minimal carcinomatosis and no ascites, which are both positive prognostic signs on the CT. Uh, yeah, exactly. Some studies also indicate that the pathology makes a difference in terms of outcomes and if you can offer surgery or not. Some indicate that gynecological pathologies have a better outcome as well. Um, I think it does depend on the extent of prior surgery that they may have had as some gynecological 
called cancer patients have had extensive debulking, which can make further surgery difficult due to adhesions on top of the carcinomatosis. Functional status is also key. The patients need to be well enough to tolerate the surgery. So you need to ask yourself, can we operate? And also, should we operate? I always warn patients that there's a chance of a negative laparoscopy or laparotomy in these cases, cases which may cause more harm than good. We need to be very clear that the goal is palliation and along with that, attempting to minimize harm and maximize comfort. Okay, so this sounds like a patient that may benefit from surgery. Yes, and I did offer this patient surgery. I was able to do it laparoscopically and run the bowel until resistance was encountered in the distal ileum where the obstruction was present and it was tethered to the carcinomatosis in the pelvis. I then brought up a loop of ileum proximal to this area for the ileostomy. This was honestly the best case scenario, and unfortunately, it doesn't always go this well. Laparoscopy is great in terms of the recovery, but it also increases the risk of bowel injury in obstruction. So we have to be very cautious using it in these patients, especially where any complication at all could significantly affect their quality of life and also shorten their remaining life. Well, I'm really glad she had a good outcome. I've seen a few of these patients who had surgery and, you know, we had a what we thought was a good technical surgery, but afterwards they still couldn't tolerate solids. And, you know, we really thought that the, they were good technical candidates before we thought everything went well intraoperatively, but then they get this prolonged dysmotility and they have a, a hard time, um, you know, really having consistent oral intake after, um, and any thoughts on this or anything we can do differently? Yeah, there's not a lot of literature on this, but I think there's a few reasons this can happen, unfortunately. Uh, one of my staff in fellowship, Dr. Sanjay Reddy, used to refer to this as carcinomatosis ileus. These are patients that have studying of carcinomatosis through the small bowel or its mesentery or like a miliary type disease that can't be obviously detected on CT, but can affect the peristalsis of the small intestine, resulting in a functional issue on top of any visualized mechanical obstruction. You may also see patients with disease invading around the mesenteric vessels and therefore uh, the nerve plexi that will also have persistent dysmotility. I warn all patients if I'm offering them surgery that just because I can technically resolve their blockage doesn't mean they won't have these issues and that things will work perfectly afterwards. That's really interesting. In this particular case, so what would be different if the obstruction was in the jejunum? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So things change quite a bit if we're dealing with a more proximal obstruction. Uh, if we were to divert, then she would have a high output stoma and likely need TPN, which didn't really result in any improvement in terms of quality of life for this patient. Um, so I'd be pretty hesitant to do that. You could consider a bypass in that case, uh, but you'd have to make sure that she's fit and has a good nutritional status, which you can look at albumin and pre-albumin as well as functional assessments. Um, I would then assess the bowel for car cinematosis to ensure there's an area clear of disease to create a bypass or anastomosis. I'd also make sure that there's no distal point of obstruction beyond the one identified on the imaging already if I was considering resection or bypass. This could be done with rectal contrast via CT, um, but you still have the risk of anastomotic leak with a bypass or a resection given her recent chemotherapy. If she was on a different type of chemotherapy, like bevacizumab, a VEGF inhibitor, then I would not operate on a proximal transition point since an anastomosis would be very high risk as it impairs healing. All these discussions, again, should be had with the patient and part of the informed consent. It's so interesting, so nuanced. So, you know, the patient we're talking about has only one transition point. Would you operate if there were more? Uh, generally not. And I think you bring up another great point that, like, it's 
really essential to involve surgical oncologists or others who may be familiar with these presentations uh, as well. Um, it's always helpful to ask a friend for advice in these cases. Um, so if that was the case with multiple transitions, it's very hard to divert. And I find there's very few candidates for bypass given the extent of disease usually present with more than one transition point. There are clinical algorithms that have been developed that indicate up to three transition points is reasonable to offer surgery. That has not been my experience. I will generally not offer surgery if they have extensive carcinomatosis, um, which can often be evidenced by a mental caking or ascites, and I generally try to limit it to a single transition point. Uh, Farhana Sharif, Keegan Guidolin, Jessica Bogash, and myself uh, have a narrative review that is just released on malignant small bowel obstructions from carcinomatosis in annals of surgical oncology. So that is great in terms of reference of the current literature. Thanks so much, Ashley. That was a fantastic case and great job, Graham, with all your answers. Uh, I'll just summarize some of the learning points from the case. Um, these are complex patients and multidisciplinary care uh, should be provided with input from oncology, first of all. Uh, secondly, a step-up approach should be used, starting with medical management prior to considering surgery in appropriate patients. Third, highly selected patients might benefit from surgery, namely those with high performance status, a prognosis of months if the bowel obstruction was resolved, minimal carcinomatosis, and a single transition point. Diversion, bypass, or resection are all options, but a patient's capacity to heal related to recent systemic therapy needs to be taken into account. And fourth, consent for surgery should focus on goals of care, quality of life, and achievable outcomes, and highlight the inherent risk in patients with advanced disease in a limited lifespan. So moving on to our second case, uh, we're going to switch it up to something a little bit different now. Graham, don't get too excited because you're still stuck in the hot seat. Uh, the next case is a 72-year-old man presented to the emergency department with several days of abdominal pain, obstipation, and distension. How would you like to approach this patient? Okay, here we go again. So this sounds like another bowel obstruction, but I, I will assume you're going to throw something different at me. Um, you know, as always, I'd assess the patient's ABCs, their stability. I'd make sure they had IV access. I'd fluid resuscitate as necessary. And, you know, the differential um, is quite broad at this point. I'd... Uh, I'd take a focus history, I'd clarify their symptoms, changes in bowel habits, um, blood per rectum, any constitutional symptoms. Um, I want to know their medical history, surgical history, specifically things like malignancy and inflammatory bowel disease. Have they had colonoscopies? And then, uh, of course, any pertinent social or family history. And finally, I'd order a basic set of labs and uh, do my focus physical exam, as I described before. That's great. And I think it, uh, it shows a good general approach to this type of undifferentiated patient. So he felt quite well until about three days ago. And then he stopped passing flatus or stool and became progressively more bloated. He said he might have had some blood in his stool, but he doesn't tend to check. He has hypertension and dyslipidemia, which are both controlled with medication, had an appendectomy as, quote, a teenager. Uh, he has no previous colonoscopy or fit testing that he knows of, and he's a one pack per day smoker. There are no other notable findings. On exam, he's stable, his abdomen's distended and mildly diffusely tender. His digital rectal exams are unremarkable. Blood work shows a hemoglobin of eight grams per deciliter um, or 80 in Canadian units, uh, but it's otherwise unremarkable. Uh, what would you do next? Hey, thanks for the unit conversion. That's very helpful for me. Um, I, uh, I think it's time to image the patient. You know, we can consider an abdominal series uh, of x-rays, but they're stable. So I think we more reasonable to get a CT abdopelvis. 
Yeah, I think that's quite reasonable in this case. So the CT shows a large bowel obstruction at an apple core type lesion in the mid sigmoid colon concerning for malignancy. There's some upstream colonic dilation noted as well. Uh, Ashley, what other things would you be looking for as a surgical oncologist and as an acute care surgeon? Uh, thanks, Jordan. This is a very common scenario and one that does require a nuanced approach. So I always want to get as much important information as I can from our diagnostic imaging. Given the large bowel obstruction, we know this is going to require some sort of urgent intervention, but I would discuss the case with my colleagues in radiology to identify any signs of local regional invasion, synchronous lesions, any concerning lymph node disease, and any signs of intra-abdominal metastases. Also, we want to identify any signs of ischemia or compromise to the proximal colon, especially the cecum, and whether the ileocecal valve appears to be competent. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, so in our case, uh, there's some mildly enlarged musicolic lymph nodes, but no observed metastases. There's no signs of perforation or bowel compromise. There's a moderately distended colon and what appears to be a competent ileocecal valve. So Graham, hearing all that, what are our options? Okay. Um, yeah, just, just like you both said, I mean, these are tough cases. Um, they're obstructive, but no uh, clear signs of uh, distant metastatic disease. Um, I, I, I'd approach this with an upfront operative uh, approach um, or uh, stenting as a bridge to surgery. So absolutely. And both are options. And admittedly, there's a little bit of controversy in this area. Several individual studies and reviews have looked at stenting for two primary purposes, either palliation for an obstructing lesion or a bridge to surgery, as you mentioned. Placing a self-expanding metal stent allows the bowel to decompress and turns this kind of from an emergent procedure into a semi-urgent procedure. These are typically used for left-sided disease, although right-sided stents have been described, but these are much more technically complicated and uh, when used tend to be with palliative intent. Uh, very distal or rectal stents also aren't favored as they tend to migrate more frequently and or cause significant pain. So stents are also found to be largely ineffective for cases of extrinsic compression. Importantly, stents in this setting have been shown to decrease the rates of permanent stoma, but other outcomes such as overall and disease-free survival have had conflicting results in various studies. One additional concern that I always have in these cases is that there's a perforation rate of about 5% in most centers, and data suggests that these perforations are strongly associated with recurrence. For that reason, I tend to favor the use of stents in a palliative situation, but personally prefer upfront surgery for potentially curative resection. However, this certainly could be considered in an expert center. Assuming we go to surgery, what's your approach in these cases, uh, cases Ashley? Thanks, uh, Jordan. That was a great explanation. Uh, part of my informed consent with the patient should involve a discussion of if they are going to have an ostomy or not, assessing their past continence as well, as this may influence your decision-making. Preoperatively, involving the endostomal nurse, if you have time for it, uh, for marking can make a profound difference in quality of life for the patient if they end up with a stoma. Unfortunately, you don't always have this option in the emergent setting. So us being trained in marking as well is helpful. Uh, a laparoscopic or open approach are both reasonable depending on your comfort and expertise, although it may be quite difficult laparoscopically depending on the degree of distension from the obstruction. The abdominal cavity should be examined for any signs of local regional metastases, and the primary lesion should be assessed for resectability. It's always important to remember for these emergent patients, they have not typically undergone colonoscopy in the recent past or a full staging workup prior to ending up in the operating room. Therefore, it's important to examine the proximal colon as well to make sure there's no large synchronous lesions uh, that may have not have shown up on imaging, and also to look for signs of ischemia proximal for the in the obstruction. 
option because that may change your surgical management. Perfect. And of note, we don't tend to scope in the setting of acute obstruction for risk of causing further proximal distension and valve compromise. Uh, but if there's any concern about the certainty of the diagnosis or if the patient's only partially obstructed, I'd be more inclined to do some sort of intraop or pre-op endoscopic assessment. Uh, at this point, how would you do your resection, Graham? Okay, so I would do an anterior resection. I'd ensure that I resected at least five centimeters of normal colon on each side of the lesion. Um, I'd also want to resect a suitable amount of the mesocolon to ensure an adequate nodal harvest. And then comes the decision of whether or not to put the patient back together. Um, you know, of course, always a tough decision. If the patient's stable, there's no signs of malnutrition, and there's minimal size discrepancy between the two bowel ends, then I would favor doing an anastomosis. So I completely agree, Graham. I, I like to put these patients back together whenever possible, but unfortunately, the big limiting factor here is often that size discrepancy. In those cases, you may have to do a staged approach with a Hartman's type procedure first, which is part of the reason, of course, why there's been so much interest in the possibility of bridging these patients as, or, uh, with stenting uh, to try to get them to surgery. Now, how might your approach change if you found a large synchronous mass in the cecum or if the cecal distension had caused ischemia or perforation? <laughs> so... Uh, those certainly make things more complicated. In either case, I think the best option is probably to do a subtotal colectomy and then uh, the consideration of an ileal rectal anastomosis if there's no contraindications. Um, you know, I do recognize that these patients tend to be sicker and, and a lot of them are best served with an ileostomy. Um, also, of course, if the bowel is perforated, I'd, uh, I'd be inclined to continue antibiotics for, for some time postoperatively. Excellent, Graham. I totally agree. I find often these patients need an ostomy just because they're unwell going into the operating room. Uh, finally, what would you do if the lesion was more distal than anticipated? So say it was found in the mid-rectum. Oh, okay. So um, with rectal cancer, the, the resection can be much more complex. And we really try to discuss these patients uh, with the multidisciplinary team. Um, this may be someone now that would benefit from neoadjuvant chemoradiation. Um, but of course, the acute problem is that they're obstructed. So um, in the acute setting, I would plan for diversion. Um, I think it's important to look down the road, though. So I wouldn't want to burn any bridges that would uh, affect a potential curative resection for them. So um, I, I am interested. What type of diversion do you, uh, do you two typically do in this situation? I'm glad you asked because this choice of procedure is a, another big area of controversy, of course. In general, we prefer diverting loop ileostomy to maintain an intact sigmoid left col and left colon for future oncologic resection and reconstruction. Uh, however, in a significantly dilated colon, particularly with a competent valve, you may have to do a loop colostomy or an ileostomy with the addition of perhaps bringing up a corner of the cecum for venting and decompression. Perfect. So that wraps up the scenario. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, so I'm just going to go over some take-home points from this case. I think number one, colorectal malignancy is an exceedingly common cause of general surgical emergency presentations and requires a thoughtful and systematic approach involving multidisciplinary care when possible and the time allows. Uh, two, the role of stenting as a bridge to surgery in obstructing distal colon malignancy is somewhat controversial, but can help to avoid permanent stomas. However, there's some potential risk of perforation and possible disease recurrence if a perforation were to occur. Three, treatment decisions should take place in the context of informed discussion with the patient and consideration of both quantity and quality of life whenever possible. Four, consistent involvement of a multidisciplinary team, which I mentioned, but should include radiology, enterostomal therapy, and surgical oncology can be extremely useful in guiding complex decisions in these patients.
Okay, great. Thank you both so much. Those were two wonderful cases. I really learned a lot. Thanks so much for going through them with me. I, I hope that some of the learning points are useful to our listeners. Um, I say now we wrap things up and, and I have to say I've been getting a lot of great feedback on Coley No Coley. So I've been trying to think of a, a catchy game that could kind of hammer home some of these learning points. So today, uh, not Coley No Coley, but I think we'll play a rapid fire round called Resect, divert, bypass, stent, or nothing. Yeah, that, that doesn't quite have the same ring to it as like colon, no colon. <laughs> I guess that was taken. Yeah, uh, probably. Okay, so uh, so the rules are the same. I'll give you a scenario. You've got to pick resect, divert, bypass, stent, or nothing. And uh, based on your answers, I'll arbitrarily award a winner. <laughs> Sounds, Sounds good. good. Perfect. Okay. First scenario, 68-year-old male, healthy. They've got a large hepatic flexion mass that's causing them obstructive symptoms, but you don't see any clear plane between the mass and the duodenum on CT. Dr. Nadler? This is a classic exam scenario. I'm going to say for general surgeons, the answer should be divert. If you're an HPB surgeon or surgical oncologist, then you could consider resecting depending on the extent of involvement. Dr. Nada? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say ideally it should be resected, but uh, not in my hands. Great. Scenario two, a 74-year-old female, she's comorbid. She's got a bleeding mass on the greater curvature of the, stom uh, the stomach. Uh, she's requiring intermittent transfusions. She's got a previous history of radiation for lymphoma, and IR is unavailable to embolize. What do you want to do, uh, Dr. Nadler? Resect, not a formal resection, just to palliate. Okay, Dr. Nada. Yeah, I'm, I'm caught in a tough place here between resect or nothing, um, but forced into a corner, I'm going to say resect. All right, some agreement so far. So on to case three, a 28-year-old male, they're being worked up for a polyposis syndrome for, uh, from years ago and then unfortunately got lost to follow-up. Now they come in with a large bowel obstruction. They've got a mass in the distal descending colon but on CT, you see numerous other endophytic lesions throughout the colon. What do you want to do, Dr. Nadler? Again, resect uh, with a subtotal colectomy. And do you agree, Dr. Nada? Yeah, resect 100%. Okay, scenario four, 88-year-old male. They're undergoing a difficult colonoscopy for rectal bleeding. There's a concerning looking mass found at 35 centimeters. And then all of a sudden, um, after the endoscopist bypasses it, the colon suddenly deciflates and the patient has pain. When you assess them, they're now peritonitic. What are you going to do, Dr. Nadler? So it does depend if it's a true 35 centimeter scope or not. It was difficult, so it may overestimate. So you'd have to see if it was actually rectum or distal colon. If it's rectum, I would divert. Uh, if it's colon, I would probably do a Hartman's. Great. And Dr. Nadler? Yeah, I would, I would say resect, assuming that the scenario is accurate. My scenarios are all accurate. <laughs> all right, next Re Resect then, resect. 38-year-old female with metastatic ovarian cancer, ascites, and she presents obstipated. She's got a single transition point, but it's in the proximal jejunum. Dr. Nadler? Uh, that's tough. I would aim to bypass, but recognize that you may be able to do nothing. Okay, Dr. Nada? Yeah, I, I think given given what I'm hearing, I'm probably going to favor nothing. Tough case. Yeah, okay. tough. 
64 uh, year old female. She's got three days of obstructive symptoms. Um, there's an apple core lesion in the right colon with distended large and small bowel. You do see gas in the rectum. They're hemodynamically stable, but they're also on five milligrams of prednisone daily for lupus. Dr. Nadler? Resect. Dr. Nadler? Yeah, resect as well. All right. A couple more. Um, 89 year old, uh, male metastatic distal sigmoid cancer to lungs and liver. They're a bit comorbid with uh, congestive heart failure with an ejection fraction of 20%, uh, type two diabetes on insulin and COPD on home oxygen. They present with progressive abdominal distension and the CT shows dilated colon proximal to the mass. The right colon's measuring eight centimeters. Dr. Nadler. I would stent if technically feasible. Uh, and within the patient's goals of care. Nice. All right, Dr. Nada. Yeah, you you hit on one of the few cases in which I would fairly strongly favorable or um, favor a stent. So there you go. Great. All right, some love for the stents. Um, last case: fifty-one-year-old female with a history of lymphoma. No previous abdominal surgeries. They present with a small bowel obstruction with a transition point proximal um, in the proximal ileum. Uh, so I would actually resect, and I would say why this is different is that lymphoma usually involves the uh, bowel itself rather than being extrinsic, and you can resect all the disease often with a resection for these patients. Okay, Dr. Yeah, I would resect as well. Okay, fantastic. It's, this is really a lot more fun when I'm not on the hot seat. Um, of course, <laughs> the, the most important part of my job is declaring the winner. And I think that needs to go to our uh, surgical oncologist, Dr. Ashley Nadler. Thank you both so much for these wonderful cases and all the teaching. And uh, Dr. Nadler, you have the honors. Woo, thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. And dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.